Morning, everybody. Oh, that was nice. Thank you. That was awesome. I've had numerous people say to me this morning, boy, you got that little, because I've never worn this until last week, he says, we're just waiting for you to break out and song and dance. And I'm an excellent singer, and I'm an even better dancer, so that might happen one day. Right behind this red curtain is the set for Cabaret. Like, there's stairs coming down two sides and stuff like that, so I was talking to Derek about maybe starting one service with each of us coming down one side of those steps. It's very cool. Welcome. It's great to see you today. Um, we do have that cry room, so if your kids are crying or the sermon makes you cry, in a good way or a bad way, you can go and cry there. So that was a joke. Uh, we're going to talk about authentic faith. So uh, if you're new to grace, we kind of just, just going to say things a little bit, maybe like they are, kind of straightforward about some stuff and offer some data. I've been reading a book recently. Some of these studies are a little bit redundant. This book called Unchristian. So I'll reference some studies, some things I got, some statistics from this book. But, you know, a, a lot of this stuff is uh, it's been out there for a couple years on the church and particularly this area of hypocrisy, what we're going to talk about this morning. What does the word actually mean, hypocrisy, or to be a hypocrite? The word basically means to act or to pretend. In other words, somebody who is a hypocrite is an actor or an actress. And that, that can be problematic. It can, it can lead to some dangerous things. Right here in Arlington County, just a few years ago at a beauty salon, a lady walked in and everybody ignored her. And that made her angry, and it lasted for a, a good amount of time. And so she had, all, she, she had all she could take. So she's standing there at front, and the next person that walks in, she acts like she is a beautician. And she says, what would you want? The lady says, I want my hair colored. Come on in. She shows her to an empty seat. And she mixes up all this stuff with, on the hair, you know, and puts it on there. And boom, bright blue comes out. And about that time, this is a true story. About this time, the other people work there. They're like, have you ever seen this lady before? And they realized. And so they called the police and had her arrested. So it's very dangerous to be hypocritical because people could end up with blue hair, hurt feelings, a lot of stuff. Jesus uses the word hypocrite more than anybody else in the Bible. Like he almost is the sole user of that word. And you find it 16 times in the Bible. Seven of those times, almost half of those times are all contained in Matthew chapter 23. This is fascinating. Now I'm going to go through this quick. Because if you've been around Grace for a while and you look at that little blue piece of paper, you say, oh my gosh, there's 16 fill in the blanks. That's like the all-time record. Nobody else is going to match the record that I'm giving you today with the fill in the blanks. So you might be thinking it's going to be a really long sermon. It's not. I'm just going to go through it real quick, okay? So here are the seven woes of a hypocrite. Here's how dangerous it is. This is Jesus talking. He says, hypocrites shut people out of heaven, Matthew 23, 13. In verse number 15, Jesus Christ says, hypocrites win converts, as opposed to what Jesus Christ talks about, about people you know, becoming disciples, which is relational. This is more institutional about winning converts, and that's verse 15. In verse 16, Jesus says, hypocrites look for loopholes. In verses 23 and 24, he says, hypocrites are misguided. In verse 25, he says, hypocrites are self-centered. In verse 27, he says, hypocrites act spiritual as a cover. Like, they're not really spiritual, but they act really spiritual to kind of cover up their stuff. And in verses 29 and 30, he says, hypocrites overestimate their own character. I want to give you three really important pieces that um, 
connect to what we're going to talk about today with hypocrisy, a study that's been done that I mentioned a few moments ago from this book on Christian. Now, this data comes primarily from people from ages 16 to 29. However, you need to note this, that there is not this dramatic difference once you get outside of that age range. But this is the specific age range that I'm talking about, just to be clear. All right. So, and it's on the blue sheet. It's probably going to be behind me there as well, I think. All right. So, 85% of non-churchgoers say present-day Christianity is hypocritical. 85, big number, 85%. That age category, non-churchgoers say present-day Christianity is hypocritical. Think about the ramifications of that. Now you might say, well, they don't go to church. How do the people feel inside the church? Look at this next number. 47% of churchgoers say the exact same thing. That's pretty powerful. Second important piece of information that we need to know. 84% of churchgoers know a Christian personally, but only 15% see, see any lifestyle difference in their life. Like, you know, they know them personally, but they don't see them as any different in choices that they make every single day and what they do from people who don't go to church. Last piece of information. They ask people, what is the priorities of being a Christian? So, so you're a Christian. What does that mean? Or you, 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 you know something about Christianity or you, you, know, you see them on the TV, whatever. What do you think their priority is? So they ask churchgoers and they ask non-churchgoers, what is the priority? And so what was the number one response given back for what the priority is of a Christian? This is very interesting. The number one response for non-churchgoers is this. Christianity priority number one is all about rules and regulations. Boom. That makes sense. They asked churchgoers what the number one priority is. And what did they say? The exact same thing. The exact same thing. They said it is avoiding sin and it's about being good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us today. Talking about a subject. Some of us are here that, you know, hypocrisy hits us at all different levels. Some of us have really been hurt by that. And I pray that today... There would be healing. I pray for understanding today with everything you know is going on in our lives and understanding walking with you, Jesus Christ, and what authentic faith is. Uh, so just help us and guide us in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's get this out right up front. All of us are hypocrites on some level, right? You ever been uh, you know, in a situation, maybe you're fighting with somebody in your home, your apartment, wherever you are, it's just really getting into it. You're a blankety blank, 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 and the phone rings. And you pick it up. Hello? No, you didn't call it a bad time. Now it's perfect, right? So, right, we, we can all, right, we're all that image conscious, which that's what hypocrisy really is about. It's, about. it's about image, so we can be that way. But here's the thing. Both insiders, now insiders, in, I'm going to use insiders for people who go to church, outsiders, people who don't go to church, right? So both insiders and outsiders say it's all about being good. That Christianity, from an insider, from a churchgoer's perspective, is about being good. Judge me on this standard. How good am I? That's what the church is saying. Am I clear? Does that make sense? I don't want to. This is a really important point. The church going person wants the non church going person to judge them on the standard of how good I am because they already said the number one priority in being a Christian is avoiding sin and being good. So judge me on that standard. So then they look at a church goer and say, well, you're not that good. So now we have a problem. Do you under, do you understand where that's going? This is the problem. And my question is this, everybody. Is that how Christianity should be judged? Like biblical Christian, what we read in the Bible, is that what we see in Christianity? That's the way to judge it? 
I know, and I want to be clear up front, that you know, the Bible says, by your fruit you'll know them. And James says, you know, faith without deeds is useless. So obviously everybody, you know, avoiding sin and behavior is important. But is that priority number one? Is that the first standard of judgment way out there? Or should it be something else? Genuine biblical Christianity. So let's talk about lifestyle for just a second before we jump into the rest of this. Lifestyle differences. I already mentioned this before. Lifestyle. A whole study, not just the one I've been reading, but this has been done a long time. What are the differences between somebody in lifestyle decisions and choices who go to church and somebody who doesn't? And what they found is almost nothing. Everything is about the same. So when it comes to making a decision about alcohol, sex, lying, cheating, stealing, gambling, revenge, unforgiveness, money, or serving other people, church people and non-church people choose the same thing. There's, there's, there's no difference. Except for in three really interesting areas, okay? Here's interesting area one, number one as a lifestyle choice. A churchgoer does this. Ready for this? This will be shocking to you. They go to church. Big difference between churchgoers and non-churchgoers in a lifestyle decision is they go to church. Interesting piece of data number two. The churchgoer owns more Bibles than the non-churchgoer. The non-churchgoers tend to own Bibles too. They just don't own as many or as in many translations. Number three, check this out. This is good. I just read you the long list, all these similarities, and they're making the same you know, moral choices all over the board. But here is something that's really big, important point number three that really stands out with the churchgoer. They feel saying the F word is like really bad and they won't do it or they won't flip the middle finger to somebody. Those are the big three. That's how we're distinct. Isn't that awesome? Like no middle finger, an F word, won't say it, unpardonable sin. Everything else is cool. It's all, it's all good. You're going to go to heaven. If you cannot say the F word or use the middle finger driving around the roads here, then you're good to go, all right? That's what, this is what the data is telling. I just think that's absolutely fascinating. All right, so from all this data that we talked about last week with condemnation and this week hypocrisy, what happens, everybody, when you tell your coworker or your neighbor down the hall from you at the condo or whatever, right? When you say, I'm a Christian, I go to church. What, 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 what are they filtering through their mind right away? That you're self-righteous condemner, right? And that you're a hypocrite. Now, look, this even happens amongst us churchgoers. Like when I meet somebody who is a churchgoer, you know what's going through my mind? I'm thinking, I wonder how condemning or hypocritical this person is. Case in point, my family, we had this great opportunity a few years ago. I was asked to speak at a church in Wyoming. It was awesome. Took the whole family out there. It was just before Easter. And we went there and spoke at this church. And then we decided to go skiing for a couple of days. And so we had to get up really early one morning. And this shuttle bus driver came. It was just us in a van with a shuttle bus driver. And he was driving us from the ski resort down to the airport. It was an hour-long drive. And when I got in, I sat in the passenger side of the van. I got in. I noticed he had his Bible right there. Right? And he had another Christian book. And so somehow in the beginning of the rice, he says, what do you do? I said, well, I'm, or he said, why are you out here? What do you do? Blah, blah, blah. I said, well, I'm a pastor and I spoke at a church and then we just took a couple of days. Oh, I'm telling you for an hour straight, this guy just blistered people up one side and down the other, judgmental, condemning. It was awesome. I mean, he just unloaded. You know what I'm saying? He did not disappoint on the data at all. You understand? So we're pulling into the airport parking lot and he turns to me and says, so it's Easter is, you know, Sunday, this Sunday, what are you preaching about? And I said, 
I'm speaking about why people hate the church because it's all about condemnation. And he just says, oh, and that was it, you know, and I, I got out. So it is. So um, this is what happens with church. Now, now, what can we do with this? All right, we all know the bad stuff, right? So what are we going to do about this? If we're asking people to come to faith in Christ because we are so good and we're not so good, what are we standing on? How do we actually develop authentic faith in a biblical way, right? And how do we destroy hypocrisy? I want to give you four things to think about from the Bible. Developing authentic faith. Number one, keep it real. And we talk about that all the time. Hey, man, keep it real. Keep it real. We're in an image-conscious world. We're in an image-conscious city, right, where it's hard to keep it real. And then also Christianity. There's this feeling, this huge feeling that's pervasive across Christianity that it's all about doing good and being good or avoiding sin. Is that the way it was in the New Testament? Let's read this. 1 Timothy 1.15, the Apostle Paul is writing. Who's he writing to? He's writing to his young mentor, pastor, young Timothy. Paul is like, I mean, he is revered. Theologians today call Paul the greatest Christian who ever lived. He's starting churches all over the place. And here's his young Timothy who looks up to him so much. And what does he say right off the bat to Timothy? Does he say, Timothy, continue to avoid sin as I avoid sin, Timothy, and be a good boy. So that the gospel continued to go out well. No, what does he say to him? First Timothy 1 Timothy 1.15 says, Here's a trustworthy saying, Timothy, that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then what does he say next, everybody? Of whom I am the what? The worst. Are you serious? That's no way to evangelize. That's no way to build a young pastor up. Tell him that you're the worst sinner in town. What's up with that? How about Isaiah, the famous prophet of the Old Testament? The book of Isaiah is considered a mini Bible. 66 books in the Bible, 66 chapters in Isaiah. Perfectly track along with the way the story unfolds for us in the Bible. The same way the story unfolds in the book of Isaiah. It's an awesome book. Revered prophet. And what does he say? Isaiah 6.5. He says, I am a sinful man. He goes on to say, I am undone. I am unclean. This kind of transparency. See, what we have today is that Christianity is being built on the back for some reason of me and you being good if you're a churchgoer. If you're a Christian. On us being good. And maybe it should not be judged on that level. Maybe instead Christianity should instead be judged on the level of how transparent and authentic we are. Because it seems like in the early church, when they seemed to get it the most right, that's how it was going. Keep it real. It's very, very important. The champions of faith in the Bible were authentic, transparent, keep it real kind of person. They were just real people. They didn't put on an act whatsoever. Peter, Paul, Mary, they were a singing group, but they're also in the Bible. Peter, Paul, Mary, Isaiah, David, King David, the Roman centurion, all of these people, very, very real. What do we do in the church? I'm going to tell you about an experience that happened to me a couple years ago. Every now and then, I'm in other churches. I'm in other church facilities because of whatever going on in my life. And I was doing a wedding, doing a wedding at, at another church locally here. And I could tell immediately, this was a church like really revered the pastor. Why do some churches revere the pastor? Because we are the ultimate do-gooders. Like nobody avoids sin like pastors. You, you understand what I'm saying? 
Does that make sense? Okay, so really revered there. And so I walked in, and it was for a wedding rehearsal. Now, have you ever been at a wedding or a wedding rehearsal, and you know what's going on behind the scenes? You understand what I'm saying? Behind the scenes. Forget all the nice trappings out front. Behind the scenes. There's a lot of frustration sometimes, everybody. Like, things can get really hot. And so I walked into this wedding rehearsal, and there's like 30 people in the back, and they're all talking. There's like a beehive. Ah, it's going on. And I walked in, and a lady, she'd never seen me before. Do you know what? But, but somehow, I must have been an aura about me. She's, she goes, are you the pastor? I said, I am the pastor. And she turns around to the group of people and says, the pastor's here. The pastor. Get out of the way. And she pushed people out of the way. It was like a little lady, 95 years old, in a walker. She said, get out, get back, out, let him through. The pastor is here. And I, they parted like the Red Sea, and I walked right up the middle. It was scary. It, said, it felt so good. It felt so good. Right up the middle. Because the pastor, the pastor is here, right? The pastor. What we find is in the Bible that the leaders were the most transparent. They weren't like unreal, do-gooder people. Hey, judge me by how good I am. They were people who were authentic. Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament. I am the worst sinner of all. Maybe we should stop telling everybody, judge me on how good I am. Maybe what we should say is, you know what? Why don't you judge me on how real and authentic I am? Because I got a lot of problems. This is what we see. Keep it real. It's very, very important. Okay. Um... Let me say this last thing. Do you have somebody, because the Bible talks about this, do you have somebody that you can be real with? I mean, you have somebody that you can really confess your stuff to? Because the Bible in the book of James says we should confess our sins one to another. It's really important that you find somebody, and I'll emphasize the word trustworthy. You don't want to just tell anybody anything. It makes me think of a story of three pastors were out playing golf, and they decided to get real with each other. And one pastor just said, hey, you know, guys, I have a gambling problem. And, I, and he went through and told them all. And the other guy says, well, since we're confessing, I got a real problem with alcohol. Like even some Sundays I get up and I'm a little still tipsy. I drink. And the last guy says, the third pass says, I got this major problem with gossip. And I just, I can't, I just cannot wait to get out off of this golf course. So uh, I be very careful, but we all need to confession. We need to keep it real. Forget the image. Be transparent. That's a better, that's how you build authentic. Serving the poor is thing number two. Very important, serving the poor. Jesus Christ, out of the blocks, when he begins his ministry, how does he begin his ministry? What does he do? He stands up in a synagogue in Nazareth. He opens the scroll, Isaiah 61, and here's the first words that Jesus Christ says when he begins his ministry. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to who, everybody? Who? The poor. The poor. So when we ask Christians in a survey, what is the priority, right? What is the priority of your faith of being a Christian? The number one response, the number one answer up here was, I got to avoid sin. It's all about sin. I got to avoid sin. I got to avoid sin. I got to be good. That's what I got. You know what was way, way down here at the bottom of the list? Serving the poor. Is that a problem? It's a major problem. You know why? Because Jesus Christ, on his list of what it means, it's at the top. And for the modern day Christian, for most, it's way down here at the bottom. How can we develop our faith in Jesus Christ if we're not modeling what's important to Jesus Christ? It does not work. If it's on the top of his list and the bottom of our list, we will never develop the faith the right way. I want you to think about this. Who was, everybody, the first martyr for you people who really know the Bible? Who was the first martyr of the Christian church in the book of Acts? Who knows? Shout it out. 
Stephen. What did Stephen do? What was he? What was his ministry? To the what? Anybody? Go ahead. Somebody knows. To the poor. So when the enemy of our soul, the devil, says, you know what? I'm going to trip up this early church. I'm going to somehow throw a wrench in what's going on. Does he go out and get the pastor, Peter, the preacher, the leader, and say, I'm going to throw a wrench in what's going on here? Or when he says, I want to slow down the church from the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, from people here, to, who am I going out? I'm going to go out and get the guy whose ministry it is to serve the poor. That's the way to shut it down. That ought to get our attention. If we want to grow our faith, we want to grow our faith, we've got to keep it real. We've got to serve the poor because it's way up on Jesus Christ's list. And it's way down for some odd, bizarre reason on the everyday Christian's list. And that just won't work. When we develop authentic faith, we destroy hypocrisy. Third thing, don't allow sin to become an idol. I believe in the Christian church in America, particularly, sin is our number one idol. We idolize sin. We love sin. Why? What is an idol, everybody? Why would I say that? An idol is something that defines us. It's something that we do. If, if you're around somebody and they have an idol, you're going to know it. You get close enough, you're going to know it, right? Because they're going to talk about it, going to think about it, going to speak about it. Let's just take case in point, the Redskins. Let's say for some reason... You really like the Redskins, right? So anybody who you see with the Dallas Cowboys jersey on, you've got something negative to say about them. Anybody you see with the Redskins jersey on, you love enough on them. You're saying, that's great. That's wonderful. I appreciate you wearing that today. God's leading you today. You say stuff like that, right? You build them up because you're all about the Redskins. So anything you're, you talk about it, you think about it, all this goes through your mind. Everybody, what's the number one thing the church is about from a non-church goer's perspective? What's, what's the number one thing the church? I already told you. What is it? Sin. What's the number one thing the church is about to a churchgoer's perspective? Sin. It's the same. We are defined by what we talk about and think about the most. It's who we are. We idolize sin. And the Bible says we should not have any idols. That God should be number one. Our focus. We are never going to develop authentic faith by focusing on what we do, our good deeds. Look at me. Look how good I am. Look how much sin I have. We're never going to develop authentic faith that way. We're going to develop authentic faith by focusing on the grace of Almighty God. Last point. We need to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. Live in the power of the Holy Spirit. I, you know, I have heard that all my life. Acts 1.8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit... And I always thought, whoa. Anybody ever heard preach that? I mean, they, with the emphasis on power, I mean, it just, whew, I felt good, but I had no idea what I'm supposed to do with that. Power, or hit me with it, man. What does that look like? How does that happen? Can you give me anything tangible? Are there tangible biblical principles about what I can do to be filled and be, to live by the power of the Holy Spirit? This is what I need because for me, in my mind, just the way I think, it feels a little nebulous at times. And so I want to go through just a couple things real quick on what I think from reading through the Bible that it says that we need to do or be a part of our lives so that we're filled with power. And the first one is this. It begins with total security and total trust. If I want to be filled with the power of the Spirit, I need to have total security in the, in, in the Holy Spirit and total trust in the Holy Spirit. I want to read you Romans 8, verses 1 to 4. This is excellent. Here, in my Bible, it says, at the little headline at the beginning of chapter 8, it says this. It says, life 
through the Spirit. Chapter 7 ends, the Apostle Paul says, this great Christian, he says, there are things that I want to do and I can't do, and the things that I shouldn't do, I just keep on doing. He's frustrated. And then he finally, he says, in total frustration, the end of chapter 7, he says, who's going to free me from this body of death? Body of death, very specific term. It was a term that was used back then because it was a form of execution. Sometimes they would execute you by taking all the, you know, you'd have a bare back and they would tie a dead, rotting corpse to your back and would slowly kill you. And so he's referring back to that, I'm slowly dying because I got a corpse dragged to me. Who's going to free me from it? Romans chapter 8 introduces us to Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is what he says. He says, therefore, there is now no condemnation. Then say there's like, man, you're partially off the hook. He says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do. What does the law represent? Rules and regulations. What rules and regulations were absolutely powerless to do in my life It has been weakened by the sinful nature. God did it by sending his own son, the likeness of sinful man, to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in me. Now, I'm not condemned, but my sin is now condemned. What does that mean? Let me just sum it up real quick what it means. No matter what, you win if you're in Christ. No matter what, you win. No matter what you do, you win. In other words, let's stick with the football thing since we got a big game today. All right? You can fumble the ball as many times as you want in this ball game of spirituality. You still win at the end of the game. Now, that's not natural. That's, that's unnatural. Because in my world, you fumble the ball, you throw it out of bounds, you do whatever, you walk off the field, your head's hanging low, you just lost the game. That's, pure, that's, hum, that's humanity, right? But in God's world, there's something totally different. No matter how many times you fumble the ball, how many times you mess up, the guarantee is you're totally and absolutely secure because it has nothing to do with you. If it did, it wouldn't be used. The word grace would have nothing to do with it. It's grace. It's either grace or it isn't grace. And grace means it's 100% all God. So here's what you have to start with authentic faith. It's got to be all God. It's not your performance. Performance is completely out the window. It is all, all God. And the second thing, you have total trust. Romans chapter 12, verse number 2 says, God's will is good, perfect, and pleasing. Now, when I was growing up in church, we had a minister in church, and he said that one night he got filled with the power of the Holy Spirit in a church service, and he woke up two hours later underneath the piano. And as a 13-year-old kid, that just scared me to death. I knew the last thing I ever wanted in my life was to be filled with the power of the Spirit because I didn't want to wake up underneath a piano somewhere like some kind of nut. You know what I'm saying? I didn't want that. So I had no... How in the world am I going to be filled with the Holy Spirit when I don't trust the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit's going to do? I'm afraid. I mean, it's not good, perfect, and pleasing for me. God's will is not good, perfect, and pleasing for me. The Holy Spirit's not good, perfect, and pleasing because he's got me underneath the piano. You know, right? Are you following me? How in the world do we ever hope for that to happen if we're distrustful. Most people will say, right, don't ever turn your life completely over to God. Don't ever say, God, all I want is your will. Just your will bring it on because we're freaked out by that because God's going to take us to some area of the world as some kind of missionary. We're going to have to eat maggots and sleep with roaches and it's going to be terrible. We're going to be miserable because God's will for your life is to hurt you and to hinder you and to make you upset and frustrated. It's a terrible thing. But that's not biblical. That's humanity. In the Bible, you read God's will for your life is good, perfect, and pleasing. You have to have total trust. That's where it begins. Total security and total trust. Three other things to think about. How am I doing on time? I'm going to have to start wearing a watch again. At Key School, we had a little thing back up over there, Lord 47. All right, I got a couple minutes left. Do you guys have a couple minutes left? All right. Okay. 
three things that we can pray for every day, what the Bible tells us about the Holy Spirit's work in our life. And the first one is this, that the Holy Spirit frees us. Free me. We just need to go every day to the Holy Spirit, begin our day, continue our day, end our day, whatever you want to say about that. Holy Spirit, free me. What does that mean, John? I don't know. You need to talk to the Holy Spirit about that. Free me, Holy Spirit. All these verses in Scripture, Romans 8, 11, 2 Corinthians 3, 6, 1 Peter 3.18. They all say the same thing. The Holy Spirit will free us. Claim. Hold God to his word. Say, read. Take the Bible and actually read the verse to the Holy Spirit and say, you know what? I'm going to claim that. You say you're going to do it. I need that. Bring it on. One of the things that gets me about the champions of faith in the Bible is they had the guts just to write up to God. Just here we are. Say it like it is. God, I'm claiming your word. It says it here, so I'm believing it. Free me. Second thing, teach me. Luke 12, 12. John 14, 26. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. 1 John 2, 27. All say the same thing. The Holy Spirit is our teacher. Teaches us to be people of authentic faith. Final thing, everybody. Holy Spirit, lead me. John 16, 13. Acts 10, 19, 20. 13.2 and 16.6 all say the same thing. The Holy Spirit leads us and guides us in our lives. Is it important for us to bear fruit and to do good deeds? Absolutely. Is that the number one way standard that we judge what Christianity is in your life or in mine? Absolutely not. If it was, this would not be called grace. It'd be something completely different. So Jesus says in Matthew 28, his last words, the disciples, before he goes up to heaven, he says in Matthew 28, we call it the Great Commission, he's going to all the world and make disciples. All right, go ahead, have at it. I want you to go up and down your streets and up and down your hallways and just tell everybody about Jesus Christ and what he's done in your life. And what's, what's going through their head when you do that? You're a hypocrite and you're self-righteous. I'm just telling you what the numbers say. How did they do that back then? Did they say, hey, look at me. Look how good I am. I'm really not that good, but I'm hoping I can act enough that you won't notice how good I'm not. But believe Jesus Christ. Is that the way to go about it? The command is clear that we should go. Command is clear. Let's think about Peter for a second as we wrap this up. Peter, the leader of the church. He stands up on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, and 3,000 people receive Christ as Savior. All right. What did he do that was so great? What did he do? Was he like this? Was he like Billy Graham? Was he this great orator? Now, if you're a fisher person, people, woman, man, fishing, if that's you here this morning, I don't mean to, I'm not trying to say anything bad about you, okay? But I'm just questioning whether or not that this fisherman was a great orator. You know what I'm saying? I mean, can we be serious? Was he Billy Graham? I don't think so. Did he give this great sermon? No. People probably falling asleep all over the place. Was it hinged on how well he shared the gospel? Probably not. How about hypocrisy? Was he a hypocrite? Oh, man. Everybody. He's the leader. He's Jesus Christ's main man. They're all saying, hey, man, Jesus Christ was crucified. You know, well, who's this guy up here? Well, he's his number one disciple. Oh, you mean that guy? That's the guy who was in the courtyard just a few weeks ago saying he didn't even know Jesus. Matter of fact, you know what the scripture tells us? He was cussing. Like Peter was probably saying the F word and using the middle finger. No, I'm serious. I'm not joking. I'm not sure. The scripture is clear. He was cussing. He cursed when the girl said, do you know? He denied Jesus three times. Do you know Jesus? He cussed. No way. Now here he is. Well, here he is. Oh. 
He's so good. I just want to jump into the arms of Jesus because he preaches like Billy Graham and he's such a do-gooder. Hey, everybody. That's biblical Christianity. This guy was not perfect and he was not a great speaker. He was a fisherman. He was not trained to do this. How do we share the gospel? And we should. It should not be hinged on how well you share the gospel, on how good of the life you're living, but in the New Testament, the way they brought, where they brought people to faith is they prayed. When those 3,000 people received Christ as Savior that day, it broke out of a prayer meeting. Now, we talked about this a few weeks ago. In the book of Acts, when people were coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ, it wasn't because Billy Graham showed up or a bunch of do-gooders showed up. It's because they prayed and they fasted. We're going to do something this Tuesday night. It's called Fasting for Faith. Right down the street here at Arlington Baptist Church, it's in your bulletin. If you know somebody who you'd like to see come to saving faith in Christ, maybe dial down your energy of showing them how good you are. Maybe dial down you trying to come across with the perfect thing to say to them that convinces them that Jesus Christ is the way. And maybe up it, this is, see, this is, this is really humbling to our pride, maybe up it, just pray for them. What they did in the book of Acts is they would fast and pray. So I want to encourage you, if you can fast any or all of that day on Tuesday, fast. Come together Tuesday night, Arlington Baptist Church. They're allowing us to use their sanctuary for a half an hour from 7 to 7.30. We're going to worship. We're going to pray. And you know what they did back in, in, in the Bible? When they would, um, when they would pray, they would, they would burn incense before God, and it would be like symbolism of prayers floating up to heaven. And so what we're going to do is we're going to give you all a piece of paper. Nobody's going to see it but you. And you write the names of the people that you want to see come to faith in Jesus Christ. You write them on that piece of paper. We're going to collect all that paper and we're going to burn it like incense before God. And let's see if the biblical way is more effective than kind of the human way. Let's pray. Lord, thank you very much. Uh, your word is challenging. Boy, it challenges a lot of our human thinking. I want to go about this way or do things this way, blah, 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 whatever. God... Help us to really seriously consider what you are showing us in your word of what it means to be a person of authentic faith, where our priorities need to be, what we should be about. Help us to be about your kingdom, Jesus Christ, in a way that brings honor and glory to you. That's what we should do. Help us, Lord. And anybody that's here today, God, who has deep wounds and pains, maybe from somebody's being condemning to them, self-righteous to them, or being hypocritical. Father, I pray for your healing touch on us. In Christ's name, amen.